Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Afney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. We are at the threshold of a very turbulent time, if in fact we're not fully in it, in part because the enemy we face, the most dangerous, arguably, in our history, is in the midst of an internal crisis of an economic character for sure, and arguably political as well. That would be <clears throat> communist China under the misrule of uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. We have been exploring various aspects of what the Chinese are up to and how they might respond to these kinds of problems, internal to their nation by seizing upon an external threat they perceive from us to justify external activities, in fact, external aggression to maintain their hold on power. And one of the people that we've been exploring all this with is our friend and very much admired member of our Committee on the Present Danger, China, Bill Walton. He is the host of The Bill Walton Show, terrific podcast. You can find a, a number of uh, online outlets. He is also um, a man who brings a wealth of experience in terms of finance here in the United States, having been the CEO of Allied Capital, a company that I'm told now had some $16 billion under management on his watch, um, a serious player in short on Wall Street in his day, now a member of uh, the conservative movement's leadership here in Washington as a former president of the Council for National Policy, of which I'm proud to be a member. Bill Walton, it's good to have you back, especially at a time such as this. Frank, we keep coming back every week and it seems to maybe get worse each week. We've got to do a better job here. <laughs> well, I'd like to think it's not our fault, but uh, it's not our it's, fault. It's, we're, it's we're, certainly we're, notwithstanding we're, our we're efforts to make it be better. It. <laughs> yeah, that's that's our theory. That's so, Bill, let's let's um, enumerate some of the challenges that uh, Xi Jinping is facing internally. Uh, some of them of his own making, to be sure. But uh, how would you characterize, for example, the state of the stock market in China at the moment? Well, the stock market's been in free fall for the last couple of months, but that's on top of a four-year decline. Um, had you put money in the Chinese stock market uh, three, four years ago, you would have lost, it's, uh, I think it's roughly 40% of your money. Uh, of course, wow. you and I were recommending maybe put your money someplace else. So the mar market's in decline, uh, and that affects investors in China. But the the big realist the big investment market for Chinese was not the stock market; it was the um, real estate market, and that also is in a state of collapse. Uh, just this week, they announced that the big real estate company Evergrande uh, is going to be going into liquidation. They've got about three hundred billion dollars in in liabilities to their creditors, and this is a really interesting issue because we all know Chinese law is opaque. They were declared bankrupt in Hong Kong, and yet most of their assets are in mainland China. Mm. And the last five times the Chinese courts have weighed in on a Hong Kong bankruptcy, they haven't let the creditors touch the assets inside China. So this is another red flag to investors, bondholders, equity holders, whatever. Um, if you get into China, just don't 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 expect to get your money out. Then right. um, the you know the other thing that could more strategically they've got a demographic bust. Their population has been declining now for a couple of years, and the speculation I heard recently is the Chinese Communist Party is going to force people or force women to start having babies. Mm. Um, that'll be interesting about having forced them to stop having head. babies they're well, now having... in the position of forcing them to have them oh never mind uh yeah <laughs> so so there, there there's order. all that and, and and you know you look at that and it's all gloom but on the other hand china's running the largest uh trade surplus i think in their history at a rate of almost uh 70 80 billion dollars a quarter and and intriguingly, uh, we know about the trade surplus with the United States that Donald Trump and 
Bob Lighthizer were uh, were all over when they were in office, trying to trying to trying to balance that. Uh, it's now happening in China, in uh, EU, and the mm. EU, which sort of disdained and treated us as if we didn't know what we were talking about when we were concerned about China subsidizing their industries to uh, to the point where they can compete um, on the world market as a low-cost producer, now finds itself um, subject to its largest trade deficit with China. It was almost $400 billion in 2022. It's come up a little bit, but you compare that to where they were Oh gosh! In the last eight, seven, eight, nine years, it averaged about a hundred billion dollars. Mm. And the the Chinese strategy of developing uh, an electric vehicle, uh, they developed that market internally. I think eighty percent of the sh- uh, uh, cars sold in in China were made in China, mm. um, which is highly unusual. If you think about the big export market for U.S. cars and European cars in China, well, that's gone. Um, if you're in the electrical vehicle world. Well, now uh, the the head of the EU is now starting to talk about decoupling. Uh, they don't want to, I'm sorry, they don't want to decouple, they want to de-risk. That's that's yeah, well, the that's, euphemism that's of the year. That's what we hear from the Biden team too. <laughs> and yeah. nobody but, knows, but the nobody problem knows is, what that means. Yeah, the problem is, of course, that the, these Chinese car makers are not content to just populate the Chinese market, they have in mind moving them here and, of course, to Europe as well. So that trade imbalance is likely to uh, to grow further. You know, you mentioned Hong Kong, Bill, and one of the things that I was hearing just today um, is that the Chinese government has now introduced a new raft of national security laws. Um, the yeah. Previous ones were onerous enough. Um, I can only imagine that anybody who's still got any illusion that they can, you know, safely do business in Hong Kong, even if they're concerned about what's going on on the mainland, uh, is going to find that uh, those laws are reaching out and touching them, making even Hong Kong a yeah. pretty unpalatable investment play, don't you think? Well, I I follow some hedge fund and investment managers in Hong Kong and <laughs> What they're saying is sort of interesting. They're saying, you know, Chicago, Hong Kong's actually become much more livable. And the reason is uh, nobody can do business there anymore. And mm-hmm. so, well, the capital has fled and a lot, of the, a lot of the businesses have fled. Those that have left behind find it a fairly nice place to uh, live mm-hmm. for the moment. Yeah. And then I say, if that, you uh, don't mind living under Chinese oppression, of course, as well. Well, food's good, and the view, you know. But, but anyway, so yeah, it's, it's pretty it, place. It, that's for sure. They, they took over Hong Kong and wrecked it economically, yeah. and it was a yeah. symbol of, of freedom for decades. And uh, when uh, when when uh, China took over Hong Kong, um, all sorts of bad things happened. No, it's true. And, you know, Bill, I was I was there for the surrender of the place. Uh, and I remember vividly uh, the palpable sense of impending yeah. doom on the part of uh, the people there of, uh, of Hong Kong. And it's it's come to pass, as we forecast. Alas, um, Bill, one other place that uh, it, it's uh, of, of interest is, uh, I think, in the program you participated in of our committee on the present danger of China, you mentioned that the Chinese bond market is still well, doing yeah, fairly well. Is that right? Well, that's interesting because the with the Chinese, what you see is never what you actually get. And it turns out the Chinese could really care less about the equity market. Hmm. Only about 15% of the population owns shares. And as I think I mentioned, most of the companies don't get financed in the equity market. They're financed in the in the debt markets, either through uh, bank loans or from uh, loans from the state, uh, the regional states that they're that they're domiciled in, and what they've been doing, and this again is from my friends in Hong Kong that are in the hedge fund business, is they've been they've been supporting their their bonds in China, so that the Chinese bonds have been, have performed better. Than the American bonds, EU bonds, and in fact, any other. Hold the uh, thought, Bill. We have to come back and explore that more on the other side of a short break. We'll be right back, folks. Stay tuned. This 
This is Frank Affney with the Secure Freedom Minute. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency, universally known as UNRWA, supposedly provides humanitarian assistance for so-called Palestinian refugees. In practice, it has been allowed for decades to provide material support to Gaza's Hamas terrorists. Now there's sufficiently compelling evidence of 12 UNRWA employees participating directly in Hamas's genocidal October 7th invasion of Israel that 17 nations have suspended funding pending the completion of a likely UN investigatory whitewash. An indispensable group, UN Watch, will demonstrate in congressional testimony today these are not, as the United Nations and its apologists insist, a few bad apples. Rather, the entire operation is rotten to the core and should be defunded permanently. And it is high time that his former UNRWA employee named Mahar Bitar, who is incredibly the senior director for intelligence at the Biden National Security Council, be sent packing as well. This is Frank Afney. Welcome back. Bill Walton is in the house. We're talking finance in China, and we're going to talk a little bit about finance here in the United States. may have a Chinese play to it as well, but it's a very troubling aspect of what um, Wall Street and the UN and uh, the World Economic Forum and the Biden administration, not least, have been trying to cook up in terms of um, the next phase of uh, their grand uh, green reset, if you will. Uh, this involves something we've spoken about uh, with some regularity of late on this program called the natural asset companies. And Bill Walton has gone to school on these things and uh, was very helpful in actually helping the effort to stop the New York Stock Exchange from securing uh, a blessing from the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, to create a whole new class of public companies uh, that involve these things. And Bill, just a quick reminder as to what these natural asset companies are and when the New York Stock Exchange pulled the plug on the original rule, uh, whether that's likely to be the end of it. Well, the, the New York Stock Exchange put in a, the Federal Register with SEC's blessing a, a permission to create something called natural asset companies, which we, which would be traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, there were some problems with it. <laughs> Number one, um, it was a company that would be listed on the exchange, and yet the exchange itself would be a part owner of it. Um, the other part owner of it would be the Rockefeller Foundation, which is a hard left um, group and dedicated Sorry. to environmental justice. And so and it was supported by groups like that. And the issue in the business model of these natural asset companies was to was to obtain the rights to uh, land throughout the United States, whether it be federal, state, local or private, private land. And by something called ecological, I think it's called ecological services. And mm -hmm. they would, in effect, manage this land. And the, the, the charter of these companies was you can't do anything with the land that you control except that is any way productive for agriculture, mining, oil drilling, and recreation. Timber. In other words, anything that makes Farming. land useful to ordinary human beings, they were supposed to be, that was, that was supposed to be verboten. Well, it was the state's attorney generals and also the, uh, what was the other group, Frank? Treasurers. The, the treasurers of about 24, 25 states weighed in and there was a coalition that we we formed you were a leader of it and we managed to get it killed and or at least they withdrew it for now but yeah. this was the state of execution is the way i think of it yeah. well yeah and, and it's uh, it was one of the ways to bring this kind of uh, investing into existence but that's only one way now mm. the thing that made this work from their perspective was they had to invent a whole new accounting standard and invents not quite the right word because it turns out that ecological services accounting has been in the works for at the at the United Nations for almost a decade now, and we've been working and and piloting different ways to value uh, 
what land would be worth if it's not put to any productive use. Yeah. And they've come up with some. It's a kind of alchemy numbers. is the way I think of it, Bill. That, no. uh, it, it, it's making value out of thin air. Sure. In some cases, turning dross, turning dross into gold. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, there's there there's a lot of disdain for the for the, the this kind of asset and the, the idea of investing in it because people said, well, you can't make money from it. If you invest in properties, you don't do anything productive. There's no cash flow. You don't make money. Well, they forget that there's so many assets that don't produce cash flow, like uh, paintings, sculptures, uh, baseball cards. I mean, all the things that people trade. Once a market gets made in this, you don't necessarily make money from the cash flow from the asset, but you make money from trading your position and selling it to somebody else. And 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 you might market. see that done outside of the public exchanges. Uh, is that right? In well, yeah, that's the, even though the people feel like, well, gee, they can't get these now listed in the New York Stock Exchange. The thing that's been happening in the last 15, 20 years, the public markets become a very tough place for a company to uh, to thrive in because of the regulatory regime and mm. capital requirements and many other things that I don't want to bore us with here. But what's happened instead is the creation of companies called unicorns, which are private companies, usually backed by venture capital firms, which have a valuation of a billion dollars or more. And there are hundreds of these. And they're not only in the United States, but they're worldwide and they're they're unicorns in China, Frank, in addition mm. to everything else we can think about in China. So yes. it's not necessary to have a public market per se to to make this uh, work. And I'd, I'd expect that what's going to happen is they're going to come up with a private equity solution to try to create the same kind of company. But, mm. the, but the whole thing to me hinges on whether they can get people to buy these accounting standards. And as you and I joked before last week, I... You know, I was an accounting major. I'm supposed to understand this stuff. And so I went on to the New York Stock Exchange, no, the United Nations website and started looking at what the accounting was. And you go on and on and on. And I can't, you still can't quite find any there, there. It's not, yeah. you know, it's sort of, and then you just get to the point where they said, well, we just think it was worth this. And so therefore it's worth that. Hmm. Um, pretty vague. Smoke and so, mirrors. Smoke so, and mirrors. But so, so do you think, Bill, knowing people in the private equity space and in particular true believers in the green agenda and the necessity of saving the world from a percentage or two or degree or two of climate change, that uh, these things will, despite the accounting issues, uh, attract capital and, and become a thing that uh, actually winds up controlling these public lands? Well, let's look at the climate for this. And I use that pun intentionally. The thing that you and I've talked about extensively is how most, most of the institutions in America and in fact around the world are controlled by the woke green um, lobby with, with their climate change agenda. Yeah, and that includes the ESG movement, right? The whole, the whole ESG movement. And that includes uh, the you know proxy advisory advisory firms it, it includes the big investment houses like State mm -hmm. Street and obviously BlackRock but it also includes I believe the PCAOB which regulates accounting yeah. standards general accepted accounting standards here in the United States Public Companies and, Oversight Accountability and, Board and, I believe it's called Yes you, that's exactly it um, They could all feel in their way, well, you know, this is not exactly crisp as we'd like, but gee, this is such a social good that we're going to go ahead with it, even though it's slightly vague. Ends and justify the means. And I think that was maybe Vladimir Lenin that said <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, he made it famous, I think. Yeah. He did say the moral, either neither the facts nor moral consideration should should get in the way if it if it advances communism. If the ends justify the means, exactly. And that that that, that echo seems to be uh, pretty loud right now. It's it's uh, much in evidence. No, you're exactly so we need right. we we do need to worry about this because they'll be back. They're very yeah. determined. And I, the, the battlefield, I think, is whether they can get uh, ordinary investors to accept uh, an accounting standard, which mm -hmm. is just invented out of whole cloth. Yeah. And Bill, I, I think another w angle here uh, for those of us who believe this is a 
very bad idea to have, among other things, both private lands yeah. in you know conservation easement at least, and public lands and waters and air all you know turned over to people who say you can't use them for productive purposes, including quite possibly Chinese Communist Party sovereign wealth funds and maybe Russians and who knows Saudi and so on. Yeah. All all of this could well you know come together uh, unless. The government of the United States and, you know, states and so on down the food chain say, you're not getting access to this land. We're not going to give it to you to play with or otherwise restrict its use. We'll be talking more. I have the feeling with you about all of this, Bill, and trying to figure out what might the yeah. left do next and how can we head them off at the pass. But that's it for today. Thank you for your time, my friend. As always, it's great to visit with you. Your insights on all of these issues are indispensable. Keep up the good work at The Bill Walton Show. We'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Night after night in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat, this new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. We're back, and I'm very pleased to say David Wormser is with us. Dr. Wormser is the director of the Middle East Project at the Center for Security Policy. This is simply the latest of a number of incarnations in which he has been rendering incalculably important service to our country. Um, in part, as a naval intelligence officer, he rose through the ranks to become a lieutenant commander. He has also served at the highest levels of the government, uh, working with an undersecretary of state, a national security advisor, and a vice president of the United States. He is a, a go-to guy on so much of what is happening in the Middle East at the moment, and we're always privileged to catch up with him for a bit. And David Bormser, thank you for joining us once again and for your time. Thanks, Frank. Always an honor to be with you. Always. Thank you. Let me um, let me start by asking you about this um, United Nations Relief and Works Agency, almost universally known by an acronym, UNRWA, as it's mm -hmm. called. Um, it's been no secret, of course, uh, for those who have been paying any attention, that this entity is not as it is purported to be, simply a humanitarian agency of the United Nations. The, the only one that I know of that is permanently dedicated to one single set of refugees, that would be the Palestinians, but that it has ties to uh, the jihadis amongst the Palestinian population, specifically Hamas. And this is much in the news at the moment because they've been caught, it seems, uh, having 12, I believe it is, of their employees actually implicated in the attack of October 7th. Talk a little bit about this particular development, David, but put it into context for us, if you would. Sure. The, the particular development was actually information that Israel passed a while ago to the United States that 12 verified 12 of the uh, UNRWA employees actually participated in the October 7th attack in, in terms of killing 
or kidnapping uh, Israelis. So they were active uh, terrorists, uh, part of the Nukba force of Hamas. But beyond that, there are at least 1,200 UNRWA uh, employees that are members of Hamas. They might not have participated in October 7th, uh, but they are participating in Hamas overall. And moreover, we have films going back to 2004 where Hamas used its uh, used UNRWA ambulances and so forth for, for logistics of carrying terrorists, carrying weapons, etc., and conducting attacks. So there, there is, Hamas is UNRWA, UNRWA is Hamas. There's no way around it. But then you have the larger philosophical question, which is why do the Palestinians, who by the standard definition of refugee in October 6, 2023, that is five, four months ago, on the eve of this war, had at most, by the international definition of a refugee, between 30 and 35,000 refugees only to service. And yet they have one quarter the budget of the entire rest of the world's, uh, UNRWA exists only for Palestinians. The UN uh, has another agency that deals with the world refugees. This was one quarter of all the, all the um, uh, money. Also, it was three times the staff of the entire rest of the world's uh, uh, program. So why do they have a cutout? Why is it earned? Uh, un under the uh, definition that they employ, why they have so many millions of refugees, is uh, you are, if you're the son of a refugee, you are a refugee. If you're the grandson of a refugee, you're a refugee. If you become a citizen of another country, you're a refugee. So not only is Bella and Gigi Hadid uh, poor Palestinian refugees, but their child will be, their grandchild will be, their great-grandchild will be. So obviously, these are where these millions come from. Yeah. Uh, it's the only definition, the uh, standard definition the other bodies of the UN uses when you become a citizen of another country, you are no longer a refugee, or your children and grandchildren are not refugees. Yeah. So th th that's why there's really only thirty to 35,000. Okay, so the question that occurs, David, and which you've sort of alluded to here, is why this preferential treatment to the Palestinians? I mean, it's extraordinary. This particular population gets a quarter of the money that is available to the entire rest of the refugees worldwide. It's unbelievable. Yeah, because it's not misplaced altruism here. It's a deliberate strategy. It's a deliberate strategy to perpetuate the Palestinian problem and specifically the exile Palestinian issue, because that strikes at the legitimacy of Israel's very existence. This is not an agency that is trying to deal with the practicalities of Palestinians under Israeli control. It is an organization designed to perpetuate uh, in, uh, to eternity the entirety of the Palestinian issue that emerged from Israel's creation in order to maintain the uh, position that Israel's very creation was evil and needs to be reversed. Mm -hmm. So that's the real essence, the philosophical core of what constitutes the idea behind UNRWA and why it's separate from the other refugee body that deals with the tens of millions of other refugees that are genuinely currently out there. Okay, so uh, David, as I understand it, and, and uh, as we speak, there will be later in the course of the day testimony from um, a leader of a marvelous organization, UN Watch, which keeps its eye not just on UNRWA, but the whole United Nations, particularly its various operations in Geneva, before the United States House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee, as I recall. And um, he will be making the case uh, forgotten the name of the chap, but uh, he will be making the case that, um, in fact, these 12 are illustrative, as you've indicated, of a much larger uh, involvement with uh, Hamas, um, teachers, um, the uh, distribution of uh, these so-called humanitarian assistance that is, you know, very much in uh, the forefront of the efforts to help, uh, you know, the people of Gaza. Turns out much of that uh, is simply being turned over to Hamas and may or may not get to those uh, suffering 
millions in, in Gaza. Uh, where we are now is, uh, as I understand it, 17 nations, including the United States government, have suspended financing to Hamas in connection with this egregious uh, business of 12 jihadis on the payroll of Hanra uh, in the, involved in October 7th. Um, is there an argument for making that a permanent suspension and starting over if you're going to provide, uh, as we do around the world, for legitimate refugees, uh, legitimate relief? Absolutely. I, not only starting over, but I think it should be subsumed under the general refugee structure yeah. of the UN. I think UNRWA should be disbanded. It, its very purpose is to create a perpetuation of conflict. Uh, it's also corrupt to the core to the point where I, I don't see how you can unravel it from that. So you can't take the UNRWA structure and put it in the larger structure of the UN. You need to just you need to dismantle it and start from a zero state. Right. So it, it really it really and. Hillel Neuer today, which is Hillel Neuer, he, he will he will testify to it. But it's really it, it, it's completely unra un un you can't de uh, integrate Hamas and UNRWA. It's it's impossible at this point. It's right. part of Hamas, basically. And David, you've spent a lot of time uh, observing uh, this organization, the United Nations and, and UNRWA in particular. Um, the suspension of assistance from these 17 um, is contingent upon the completion of an investigation by the United Nations of what's happened here. Given the track record of the UN, including the Secretary General, uh, is there any reason to believe that what will come out of all of this is um, other than, well, a whitewash of uh, UNRWA and uh, a strong uh, recommendation, if not insistence, that uh, the United States and others uh, just start funding it again as though nothing happened. You already have the U.S. officials saying that they don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and so forth. And this is a lot like the Palestinian Authority. It's, oh, we need reform so that we can restart the very concept that failed already. Um, so I think this this uh, investigation, this audit, so to speak, is, is a whitewash. I think uh, the administration is under immense political pressure politically to show that it's reacting to this, which is why it cut off the money. I think, you know, the Israeli case is so strong on this that people have to react to it, but they're doing so uh, basically against their better, uh, against their intent. So I think as soon as the dust settles and the pressure's off, you will see a resumption of funding for the for UNRWA and a, and a resurrection of UNRWA, yeah. despite the fact that it'll be just a perpetuation of Hamas rule. Right. And indeed propping it up, uh, most certainly. Yeah. And, and David, uh, just one other related question on this uh, before we take a short break. Mehar Bitar. Mm -hmm. is a former UNRWA employee who is in charge of the flow of intelligence in and out of the White House. Um, should he be gone as he well should. as the uh, agency that he formerly worked with? He should absolutely be gone. I mean, he also was a student justice for Palestine in Georgetown. This is the organization that chants genocidal uh, slogans. Uh, somebody like that cannot represent uh, a dispassionate uh, analysis of intelligence. And he is the clearinghouse for all intelligence in the White House, yes. as well as for intelligence policy. Right. So the inputs the and is, outputs is, is inputs the key and piece. outputs. Exactly. Yeah, this is this is intolerable. So, you know, you David, we have to take a break. Stand yeah. by. We'll be right back with more. You can finish that thought on the other side of this short break. Stay tuned, please, folks.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Iran-controlled jihadists have just killed and injured 30 American troops based in Jordan. This attack is but the latest in the escalating violence engineered by Tehran and carried out by its proxies to provide minimal plausible deniability for the mullahs and their friends and, yes, agents inside the Biden administration. So when President Biden says, we'll hold the perpetrators accountable and respond in a time and manner of our choosing, what he means is, we will continue to pretend Iran is not responsible and mete out minimal punishment to some of its expendable surrogates. Welcome to the Middle East, the three Obama-Biden administrations have labored to construct, characterized by Iranian hegemony and U.S. impotence. Brace for more aggression against us and our dwindling number of friends, fueled by the Ayatollah's imminent, if not actual, nuclear weapons capability that our government has enabled. This is Frank Gaffney. Welcome back. We're speaking with my dear friend and very cherished colleague at the Center for Security Policy, Dr. David Wormser. He is the director of uh, Middle East Projects there. David, um, you wanted to finish a thought about Mihar, Mehar Bitar, uh, this intelligence uh, director at the National Security Council and, and others inside this administration that have uh, problematic ties to these characters. You know, we saw like two weeks into this war after October 7th, he said, we don't have the intelligence assets to understand how many people are actually being killed in Gaza. So we're going to rely on the health ministry and Gaza's information. The health ministry, of course, is part of Hamas, Hmm. all propaganda. There's no reality to the numbers they put out. So, uh, of course, we have a better idea. The second thing is we've been lied to again and again and again by Hamas whereas everything the Israelis have said has been accurate. So the real question that I have, or that anybody should have, is why do you want to rely on Hamas rather than our ally Israel uh, for at least initial sort of rough assessments about what's happening yeah. on the ground there? Uh, it, it's just beyond... David, this, is, this is so important on, on, well, the obvious level that, you know, relying for information on friends rather than enemies. But the fact that is Hamas is an enemy of the United States is something that is mostly ignored in all of this. Uh, it's Sharia supremacism, obviously, um, relates to Western civilization more generally, of which we are, of course, an important part, not just the Israelis. And so it, it makes all the more unconscionable that um, we have people inside the government who have ties to these guys, as we do to Iran, no less, uh, in a couple of instances as well. Hamas has said over and over again over many years, including in recent weeks, that ultimately its aim is to destroy America and destroy the West, and that they're coming after us. They're coming after Christianity, too, right. not just America as a nation, Christianity. And they've been very clear about that. We also should remind ourselves that there are seven or eight hostages that are American citizens, and 34 Americans that were killed by Hamas on October 7th. So this is not just an attack on Israel. Americans have been killed. And again, this administration shows uh, extreme insensitivity to the plight of Americans, who, of course, should be much more concerning to them than any other nationality. Uh, Yet they are obsessed. There's no other word. Obsessed with humanitarian assistance for Gaza when there's plenty of food, plenty of water, plenty of electricity, plenty of fuel. The Israelis are providing huge amounts, only case in history where uh, a country was forced to uh, supply its enemy. Um, In the course of the conflict? In the course of a war that is declared to be genocidal against Israel. Uh, And the fuel, of course, runs the war industry. Hamas is, uh, by, by the admission of, the, uh, of, of, of even the distributors, 60 to 70% of all the aid going in goes to Hamas. Uh, 
Right. And Hamas and so, David, you're not you're not saying that there are people who are without water or without fuel no, or without electricity or whatever. People, there is a humanitarian crisis, but it's actually now caused by Hamas. There's plenty of food. There's plenty of water. There's everything they need if only Hamas would let it get to the Palestinians. Yeah. But it yes. has a deliberate effort to take that, to resell it, to make money, take the fuel so they can run the tunnels the whole structure that they survive with to revive themselves and also to create the image of a disastrous humanitarian crisis right. to put diplomatic pressure on Israel to stop the war. Yeah. And this is just of a piece with the barbaric mistreatment of their own people by Hamas. We even have stories, David, and I, I think they're confirmed of um, Hamas shooting civilians trying to get access to this humanitarian relief uh, when they were hiding it off to the tunnels or elsewhere. Every um, day we get that. Speaking of um, the enmity of these, well, I call them Sharia supremacists towards the United States, David, I did want to talk with you about this incredible surge of attacks by Iran against not just Israel, not just, you know, our uh, friends elsewhere in the Middle East, but against us, our personnel, our ships, our bases there as well. Uh, and, you know, there's um, been precious little response from the, well, I call it the Obama-Biden 3.0 administration, uh, presumably because of this uh, attachment that goes back to the first of those administrations to... Uh, well, as I put it in a commentary yesterday, to, you know, empower Iran as the regional hegemon and to demonstrate in the course of it America's impotence. Your thoughts on these attacks and the response to date? Sure. Um, you know, I used the word obsession before and I, uh, regarding our policy with the humanitarian aid. Well, the obsession really is uh, a derivative of the ideological nature, the messianic ideological nature, uh, messianic in a bad way, ideological nature of this administration, where they have their theories uh, that are generally anti-American in the, in the context, context of the PLO, the Palestinian Authority, Iran. And rather than revisiting their ideas as they fail spectacularly, they double down. And this is essentially our policy with Iran right now. Uh, for those of us who study history, Frank, you've studied history and so forth, we always see that there's these moments where nations go from an emerging threat, which those who read what they say and so forth can tell. Uh, it's not hidden, but generally the West minds its own business and therefore is a little late to pick it up to the point where they become acute active threats sort of the, the, the eve of war or actually the first stage of real war rather than latent emerging or approaching war. The clouds gathering, suddenly the cloud bursts is happening. And that is what we're seeing with Iran. It's basically now unloading and unleashing in every direction on every issue. And the reason why it's doing so is the larger issue of uh, they perceive American weakness. Mm -hmm. They see that they've tricked America. It's not just weakness. They've got a, they, they have disdain for us, contempt, because contempt. everything they do to us, we grovel in front of them to beg them not to escalate, beg them right. not to take this as an action that threatens them. And they're just laughing. And they're, saying, this is, they're probably laughing at their good fortune. David, uh, let me just ask, um, you know, hold the thought here, because this is such an important point, And I want to explore with you the possibility that there may be another reason why they are being so bold, so aggressive, uh, so contemptuous. And we'll talk about that right after the break. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Dr. David Wormser, I'm very pleased to say, is with us for one more block. We are going to talk with him a little bit further about these attacks that the Iranians have engaged in against American forces, uh, uh, by some counts, well over 200 of them um, between 
Iranian proxies in one place or another. And David, I, I do want you to address this question about whether Iran is actually calling the shots when all of these proxies are engaged in this kind of behavior. But whether that's the case or whether we're just looking at a further level of aggressiveness on the part of the Iranian regime, talk about the possibility that um, sort of alluded to really by, uh, of all places, uh, uh, Speaker at Davos, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency Director General, as I recall, um, who kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, the Iranians have enough enriched uranium uh, or will in very short order to have the bomb if they do not actually have them at the moment. Um, is that a possible explanation for why they are feeling further emboldened and empowered at the moment, do you think? On the morning of October 7th, the moment that uh, we saw that there was an attack underway in Israel, my first thought was uh, Iran is behind it. And, and it's clear that Iran is behind it, whether they wanted it in October or March, whatever is irrelevant. They, they This is something they've been preparing for very carefully and, and so forth. And the reason for it, I think, had two strategic reasons. Why would Iran do this? One was the threat that was emerging of an Israeli peace structure with Saudi Arabia that effectively strategically in the region cordons off Iran and gives the West a wonderful pillar to somewhat reduce power and allow our regional allies to do the heavy lifting. But the other side of it is something that is consistent with the Iranian policy, which is their nuclear program. We saw it with the war in 2006, uh, July 2006, the Lebanon-Israel war, Hezbollah-Israel war. Whenever Iran is about to lurch forward in its nuclear program, it generally diverts attention by a regional war. And I believe that there may be an element of that now. IAEA's Grossi, the director general, as you said, uh, said that they're not only amassed enough for a bomb, but for four to six bombs. So Iran is crossing the threshold with an arsenal, not a bomb. Yeah. And that, that's actually a qualitative difference that matters. It's bad enough for them to have a bomb. It's worse for them to cross the threshold with a uh, an arsenal. And I believe that we have to keep our eyes wide open, that that is one of the main reasons why Iran is now on a rampage. I think so, too. And the trouble is, you know, we, we hear that they've got um, uranium enriched to 60%, which is not quite weapons grade, but it's near weapons grade, and they could very quickly turn it into weapons grade, and they've got enough for six or 12, in some estimates, within months. I don't have, David, anything like the kind of confidence that these guys do, that they've actually got a precise fix on something that's been held as secretively as has this uh, program, D despite Israel's efforts, which are quite remarkable to expose, you know, the archives and so on. This is more of a black box than we're being led to believe, I fear. And uh, I think, as you've indicated, the activities may be the best indicator of where they actually are, because I think it may well be that they're now confident that they have the weapons, not just within a week or so, but uh, actually have these weapons and that they're good to go mm -hmm. um, when you look at their behavior. But uh, let me ask you this, David, because um, obviously there is a concerted push by the Iranians as a result of all of these attacks, the Houthis and the militia and you know the others. Uh, to drive the United States uh, relatively small numbers of personnel that are still in the region out. And after all, right now they're more or less sitting ducks for the kinds of attacks that keep ratcheting up. Um, as a seasoned strategic analyst and intelligence professional and uh, consigliere to senior American government leaders, um, what would you be saying about the advisability of pulling out these forces under these circumstances, um, especially at a time when we are hamstringing uh, and undermining our friends in Israel who are prepared, it seems, to take on the larger set of problems here, not just Hamas? 
We've been beating up our allies, whether it's Saudi Arabia and Egypt from the day one of this administration. And now we're not only beating up the Israelis, but we're essentially trying to bring down their government and choke them in the war. We're, we're essentially now trying to get them to stop the war, which would amount to a loss, which strategically unravels the region. Um, among other things, by restricting access to weapons resupply. Well, yeah, we're basically telling the Israelis you have to slow down, and now we're saying the time's up, which means they lost because they didn't finish the war, that they're actually really on a momentum to finish rapidly and, and powerfully in a way that strategically affects the region. But the, that's a very dangerous thing for the United States because, first of all, about withdrawing. Right now, it would be seen by the Iranians and by the entire region as like Afghanistan was, which is a precipitous withdrawal out of fear and defeat, which is the last signal you want to send in the region. At that point, forget it. We don't have a presence in the region anymore <clears throat> and all the implications of that. The second thing is if we let Israel win, the image and power of our alliance structure in the region begins to become so strong that it actually reduces pressure on us to deploy ourselves they can do more of the heavy lifting. At that point, in the framework of a victory, in the framework of a defeat of Iran, and in the framework of allies that are immensely powerful and growing more powerful, then it is safe to lower our numbers of troops because it's seen as a victory going home. But right now, it is a defeat, a spectacular defeat of America. Yes. Uh, uh, with and, and we're really running like a dog with her tail between our legs at this point. That is the way it's seen in the region if we withdraw in any way right now. And David, I need not tell you, but just to impress upon our audience as a takeaway from this particular very important conversation, that way lies disaster. If we run from Iran with our tail between our legs, uh, not only will they be contemptuous of us, they will be further emboldened to attack not just our friends in the region, but us as well, I fear. Death to America is after all. Yeah, and China will get Japan. the message and Russia will get the message. Amen. David Wormser, thank you for your time today, my friend. God bless you and the work you do at the Center for Security Policy. Come back again soon. I hope the rest of you will do the same next time. Until then, go forth and multiply.